This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, good morning everybody. I take it you can hear me okay? Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Stuart Kelly. I'm one of this year's Man Booker judges. And it's a real pleasure to be here with Kristen Iverson. I can guarantee to you this is going to be one of the most revelatory hours you'll experience in the book festival this year. I think Kristen must be getting rather tired of critics and reviewers saying that her book, Full Body Burden, is about the nuclear family in both senses of that word. Um, she grew up in Rocky Flats in Colorado with two secrets. One of them was that the nearby factory, uh, the Rocky Flats facility, was the largest manufacturer of plutonium triggers in the USA. And despite what the government was saying, it was not a place of safety, it was a place of chaos and contamination and cover-up. The other secret was closer to home and perhaps even more hurtful, her father's descent into alcoholism. She's united these two things in a narrative non-fiction work which combines the best of investigative journalism with the best of memoir writing. Kristen's going to talk us through the story. We're going to have a chat and then we'd like you to join in. So please welcome Kristen Everson. Kristen, do you want yeah. to start the presentation? Yes, thank you so much, Stuart. I'm delighted to be here. Um, and uh, I thought what, I'd do, what I would do today is tell you the story of Rocky Flats. I don't need to talk into this, right? Okay. <laughs> um, tell you the story of Rocky Flats uh, through photographs and um, maps and uh, information and kind of give you a sense of uh, what it looked like. And uh, it's a big story. Um, and Rocky Flats was the big secret of my childhood in so many ways. And of course, there are all sorts of connections to what's happening in Scotland, what's happening in Japan with Fukushima. And um, this is a story that happened in my backyard, but of course it's not just my backyard, it's all of our backyards. So um, I'm going to go through these uh, photographs and slides fairly quickly, and then hopefully we can have a, a good discussion about it. Um, so this is actually the, the US cover, which is a little bit different from the cover here. But you can see in the background um, the traces of the plant there and then the mountains. Uh, the title of the book, Full Body Burden, comes from the term body burden, which is the amount of radioactive material present in a human body which acts as an internal and ongoing source of radiation. And of course, the term full body burden refers to the level at which the body, uh, it's unsafe level. Now, of course, there, I want to emphasize there is no safe level of exposure to radiation. Um, this is a family story, as Stuart mentioned, as much as a very dramatic uh, history of the plant itself. And so I'm, I've mixed up uh, some family photos here as well. I wanted to put a personal, uh, personal face on um, a very uh, difficult story. So this is uh, my father uh, and me. <laughs> and when I was uh, three months old, we moved to Colorado. I was born in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Scandinavian parents, which is actually part of the story. My father is Danish, my mother's Norwegian, and uh, the whole Scandinavian part of our family is also part of the story. Um, that we ha our first house uh, in Arvada was located about seven miles from the Rocky Flats nuclear uh, weapons facility. We did not know it was there. We had no idea. Um, this was a photo of our 
my first house and my cat. <laughs> and one of the things that I have to say just very briefly is a little bit of a digression. Um, I think writers are always concerned about how their families are going to respond to a memoir. This is a deeply personal memoir and it was also difficult to write because my parents felt that they were raising their children in the perfect environment. We were outside all the time, we had animals, we had horses, we had dogs. Um, and they thought they were you know, raising their kids in the perfect environment. So one of the more difficult aspects of the story for all of us was to realize exactly what had happened and how dangerous that environment was. And I also wasn't sure how my family would react when the book actually came out. They've been incredibly supportive. And this photo, which the publisher chose for the front of the book, I just have to tell you, it's very odd. We didn't notice it until we um, printed the book. My mother is sitting directly behind me. You might be able to see a little bit of her there. And my father's shadow is to the right, and he was the one taking the photo. So it's a little bit like my family has helped usher this book into the world. There was a secret in our neighborhood, and as I mentioned, that secret was the Rocky Flats nuclear weapons facility. We could see the water tower of Rocky Flats from our back porch. No one knew what went on there. At the time, when I was a kid, it was operated by Dow Chemical, and the rumor in our neighborhood was that they were making scrubbing bubbles. We thought they were making household cleaning supplies. Um, but they weren't. They were making plutonium triggers for nuclear weapons. Secret operations began in 1952. Um, due to uh, the Atomic Energy Commission, um, now the Department of Energy, uh, they were under no obligation to tell uh, the local population what was going on or that they were putting our lives or our properties in any risk whatsoever. From 1952 to 1989, Rocky Flats produced more than 70,000 plutonium pits or triggers at a cost of roughly, roughly $4 million each. This is the heart of every nuclear weapon made in America. Uh, it's essentially a miniature version of the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. Each particular trigger or pit, and trigger is kind of a euphemism, <laughs> uh, contains enough breathable particles of plutonium to kill every person on Earth. Hanford supplied the plutonium and Oak Ridge supplied the enriched uranium. Workers were not allowed to talk about their work to anyone, even their families. No one knew. Oh, you couldn't see anything from the road. Um, our house was about three miles uh, from the right side of the screen there. Um, you could only see it from the air. You could see nothing from the road. The plant was just a few miles from Denver and Boulder, very large, growing metropolitan areas. That's another photo. Workers um, worked in glove boxes at Rocky Flats. They would put their arms and hands into lead-lined gloves and manipulate the plutonium. And I think I have a, yeah. And they would stand on these assembly lines uh, and move the plutonium triggers down the line on a conveyor belt. Here's another shot of the um, glove box line. And another one. Um, one interesting thing, very few women worked on these lines, but there were a few, and they had special stools um, for the women to stand up and work in the glove boxes. Here's a, a photo of a repacking glove box. It gives you a sense of what the inside looks like. And the production floor. There were over 800 buildings at Rocky Flats. Most of them were uh, partly underground, some were completely underground.
Storage of plutonium and radioactive material was a huge problem at Rocky Flats. Um, Rocky Flats produced plutonium triggers, but the biggest, uh, what we really produced was uh, radioactive waste. Um, and there was a problem of where to store it and where to ship it. And just as today, we have no permanent, safe, long-term storage for radioactive waste. So much of it was held at Rocky Flats and still is held at Rocky Flats. And here's a photo of <clears throat> some of the workers checking barrels. This is a photo of the um, incinerator in building 771, which was uh, the biggest and most important plutonium production building. This incinerator, around uh, the clock, 24 hours a day, um, burnt plutonium residues. And that material was released into the air for decades. However, the Department of Energy, Dow Chemical, and then uh, Rockwell denied that Rocky Flats was involved in any nuclear activities or posed any danger to the public. Um, this is just a, a, an interesting um, chart. Known waste and burial sites at Rocky Flats. And the waste flowed uh, into Great Western Reservoir and also into Stanley Lake. And our family home was right on Stanley Lake, and that's the lake in which we swam as when we were children. Um, and the interesting thing about this particular slide is known waste implies unknown waste. <laughs> so there are many uh, burial sites and waste areas at Rocky Flats that have not been determined or identified. This is what's called an infinity room. <laughs> And I love the terminology with all of this. It's sort of uh, astonishing. But an infinity room is an area in the plant where something has occurred uh, and the contamination uh, is so profound that that room or that area can never, ever uh, be opened or accessed again. Um, so some of those infinity rooms um, still exist at Rocky Flats, and others have been broken down and ship shipped off to different sites. It's, I've also seen a photograph of um, the inside of an infinity room <clears throat> and uh, the first one, it happened in, oh, I don't know, 1953 or something like that. And there's a, there's a jackhammer line there and some gloves and uh, some other <coughs> tools there. And it's, it's very spooky and it almost looks like the bottom of a mine, you know, as if a worker all of a sudden had to leave. Um, but of course, no one can ever touch any of those materials again. There were lots of fires and accidents at Rocky Flats. Over the course of almost 40 years, there were more than 200 fires. The two biggest fires were in 1957 and 1969. The 1957 fires started in a glove box, which is where the workers, you know, worked with the, I just showed you a photograph of that. Um, plutonium is highly flammable. Uh, little shavings uh, catch fire very, very easily. And then it's difficult to put it out because you can't use water on a plutonium fire without risking a criticality or a nuclear chain reaction. This particular fire in 1957 was the worst fire at Rocky Flats. The fire raced up and down the glove box line. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the fire completely burned out the filters and the measuring equipment. So we will never know exactly how much material was released into the atmosphere. Um, and this worker is pointing to where that fire actually started. <clears throat> Here's a photo of the burned out filters from that fire. Plutonium was detected in a school playground as far as 12 miles away. Um, one other fire that I want to mention briefly was in 1969. 
this was a year that we were living out by Rocky Flats and uh, this happened on Mother's Day. This is the opening chapter of my book. Um, we were out having Mother's Day brunch and there was a radioactive cloud passing over our head. There was no warning, no evacuation, no information available to local citizens and that's the path of that particular fire. So. Um, I'm trying to give you a lot of information very quickly here, but hold on to your questions and we can come back. Um, this is a photo of the cleanup after that 1969 fire. Uh, again, the primary contaminant during that fire was plutonium, but there was also uh, americium and tritium, cesium, strontium released into the environment. And um, another um, big problem at Rocky Flats was carbon tetrachloride. Unknown to the public, more than 5,000 barrels stood out in the open for more than 11 years. My house <laughs> is three miles just off that side of the slide. Uh, and what happened with those barrels? They rusted out. The public was not informed. The biggest uh, problem was with water supplies and water that came off the site and went into um, local drinking supplies. Um, this is a photo, well, got cut off there from Great Western Reservoir, which is the second reservoir, also contaminated. Um, so now a couple of family photos. Um, this is, I, I think every family has a photo like this. Um, and I might mention my sister Karma, who's on the end there. Uh, she ended up going to work for the EPA. And it was interesting to me how many people in my neighborhood uh, eventually got into environmental work of some kind. I think um, what happened to us as children really made a difference in our worldview. Um, this is, uh, we're all on my horse Tonka, who's a star in my book. Um, this story sounds very sad, and uh, it's a difficult story, it's a difficult story. But I wrote the book, I wanted to write it like a novel. Um, and uh, my family is actually very funny, and there are a lot of animals in our book, in my book, a lot of animals in our lives. And um, again, I wanted to put a human face on it and tell, it, tell the story through the lives of the people who lived it. You can see how open the land is there. The wind would come down off the mountains and sweep across that land um, and pick up contaminants from the Rocky Flats site and carry it across the Metro Denver area. Rocky Flats was not supposed to be located close to a growing metro metropolitan area, although it was dependent upon the local population for workers. So it was kind of a catch-22 there. But when they built the plant, they based um, they based it on wind patterns from Stapleton International <coughs> Airport, which is actually on the other side of Denver, and not the site itself. So it was located in the wrong place to begin with. There's uh, another picture of Tonka. First love of my life. Um, Dr. Carl Johnson um, was the director of the Jefferson County Health Department from 1973 to 1981, and he was forced out of office for op opposing home development and home construction on contaminated land near the Rocky Flat site, which is something, as I mentioned earlier, that is ongoing to the present day. This is a map of the contaminated residential areas around Rocky Flats, and our house is right there. I'm going to skip this. This is a photo, uh, memo about radioactive rabbits. Um, we saw a lot of um, illnesses and um, problems in local animals. Um, plutonium, levels of plutonium in cattle and deer, which continue to the present day, so testing the deer. And beginning in the 1970s and the 1980s, 
there were protests at Rocky Flats. Um, <clears throat> Daniel Ellsberg uh, was a prominent protester out there. There were two very big uh, protests. And people sat on the tracks and tried to prevent the trains from moving radioactive material in and out. And this is a photo of people making uh, the uh, three-mile walk from Boulder up to the Rocky Flat site. Those are the hills there where we used to ride our horses. Uh, many people were arrested and still to the present day. And actually, I mentioned to Stuart earlier, there's a protest going on today at this very moment <laughs> at Rocky Flats. Photos of Daniel Ellsberg. Um, Jackie Brever was one of the workers um, whose work uh, led to the FBI raid in 1989. There was a raid on the plant in 1989. I believe it's the only time in the history of the United States that two government agencies, the FBI and the EPA, have raided another government agency. <laughs> um, Wes McKinley was the foreman of that uh, Rocky Flats grand jury. There was a two-year grand jury investigation. Um, eventually, there were uh, no indictments, and the jurors themselves were so incensed that they wrote their own grand jury report that was sealed by the judge and remains sealed to the present day. Here's my part of the story. In 1994, I was a graduate student at the University of Denver, and I had uh, two little boys. I was a single parent, um, and I had grown up with Rocky Flats. I believed everything that they said, that it was safe and I needed a part-time job, so I went to work at the plant myself. Like many of the kids in my, na in the, my neighborhood, I went to work at the plant. This is what it looked like when I worked there, again, an aerial view. One of the things that I discovered as I was um, working with technical reports, there are lots and lots of acronyms um, in the nuclear industry and with government work, and one of the acronyms that I discovered was MUF, Missing Unaccounted for Plutonium. What is MUF? It turns out that um, over the course of 40 years, Rocky Flats lost or misplaced um, <laughs> lots of plutonium. This is one of the managers that I worked with, um, and he has since died of cancer. Um, workers, many, many workers became ill. Uh, there is a compensation program um, in the U.S. where workers can apply for some compensation from the government but it's very difficult for them to get that compensation. Uh, less than, I'd say less than half certainly, um, have actually received any compensation. And there's a lot of red tape because you have to be able to prove exactly when and where uh, and what you were exposed to, when it happened and what you were exposed to. And of course, most of that information was secret and a lot of the uh, records have been lost or misplaced over the years. So it's been very difficult um, to prove. This is another worker. Laura Schultz. And um, I'm just going to end briefly with, um, there has been a lot of illness in my neighborhood. Tamara Meza uh, just lives down the road from my childhood home. She has had uh, numerous, I think seven, um, surgeries for brain tumors. Uh, and uh, she was not expected to live, and she's kind of a, a miracle story. Um, so much of her brain has been removed that she can't remember uh, how to walk or how to set a table for dinner, that sort of thing. But, um, but she's very, very sharp, and she can talk about Rocky Flats. Her doctors believe that there's no doubt that her illnesses have been caused by her exposure to Rocky Flats, and she's very, very articulate. So I'll wrap up by saying that um, Rocky Flats is cleaned up. 
sort of. <laughs> when I worked at Rocky Flats, they said that it would take more than 70 years and almost $40 billion to clear it up, to, uh, to clean it up, to bring it back to where the land could be habitable, habitable again. Um, of course, uh, those are impossible figures, as with the nuclear sites around the United States and in other parts of the country, it's almost impossible to clean these sites up. And we ended up um, cleaning up the site for uh, less than $7 billion in less than 10 years. Um, it's not clean. It's slated to open for public hiking, biking, and recreation although 1,300 acres uh, are so profoundly contaminated and still contain, you know, most, I mentioned most of those buildings were underground and a lot of the piping and tubing between the buildings that transported radioactive material is underground. Um, and so a lot of that stuff is still out there. And this is a chart that um, shows the uh, levels of, of contamination that remain on the site. Most of the information is still sealed and unavailable to the public. And what are we doing today? We're building new houses <laughs> um, out at the site. So it's a very relevant issue in so many ways. And of course, Fukushima, which at the present moment is releasing 300 tons of radioactive material into the ocean. Um, Fukushima reminds us in a terrible way that it, this is not just my backyard, as I mentioned earlier. This is something that affects all of us. So I think I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Kristen, I, I, I want to begin by asking about the people that work there, because these weren't uh, ignorant people or bad people. There was a real sense that the levels of poverty in Colorado meant this was an absolutely peach job to get. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a bit about the mindset of the people who work there? How were they beguiled into thinking this was a safe place? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question, um, and I think it's, it's uh, an issue that's still relevant to the present day. Um, for one thing, we were told unequivocally by the government and by the corporations that operated Rocky Flats that this was safe, that there was nothing to worry about, that if there had been any um, release into the environment, and of course, after a while, after studies started to show um, that there had been releases, that there had been health effects in the local population, um, but even then they would say, uh, these are at levels that are safe, you know, these are, don't worry about it, you have nothing to worry about. When I worked at the plant, um, there's a very strong sense of family among the workers, you know, it's a very close-knit mm. community. And a lot of people um, felt that they were, you know, doing the right thing. And it was a patriotic thing. A patriotic thing. Um, that, you know, we won the Cold War, we're saving the country, we're saving the world, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and yet there were many, many people, well, a lot of people didn't really understand exactly what was going on and what was actually being made. But um, I think even for people who did understand, uh, there were many people who had conflicting feelings. Um, and when they were told that they couldn't talk about their work or share their work or, you know, talk about what they did with their kids, with their family or whatever, there's something profoundly morally wrong. <laughs> and I yeah. think they knew that. And people decided to make all sorts of compromises for all sorts of reasons, you know. Um, I knew so many workers who said, you know, this isn't right. Um, I don't like what I'm doing, but I've got two kids in college and I've got a mortgage and, you know, um, so I'm just going to, you know, and of course a lot of those people got sick. One thing about the, I mean, it's almost farcical the way you describe what was going on there. You mentioned that the one thing you don't do with a plutonium fire is put water on it. Hmm. So what happened at the Mother's Day fire? Well, <laughs> it's, it's an incredible story. 
it's the opening chapter in the book. <laughs> because, I mean, not, it, not to give too many spoilers, but yeah. they put water on it. Right. Well, I have to say, you know, what, what happened, I mean, and that's what happened with both the fires, with the 1957 fire as yeah. well. There's no um, real uh, specific way to contain a plutonium fire. You know, it's a little bit like what's happening at Fukushima right now with terms of, in terms of what's getting out into the environment. And um, this fire raced through the glove box line and um, became so hot that the roof of the plutonium processing building started to melt like a marshmallow bubble and rise like a marshmallow bubble. And um, they couldn't stop it. Uh, and there are two guys in particular who are kind of heroes in that opening mm. chapter. And they're not even firefighters. They were guards who showed up at the plant uh, on that particular day on Mother's Day. And they were met at the gate, and the guard there said, you don't go to your regular shift. We need you down in the plutonium processing building. There's a fire. And so they literally risked their lives. They went in there, um, and they used. They ended up using water. Uh, and this, um, the roof did not breach. We came within seconds of it breaching. If it had breached, I would not be here talking to you today. We came within seconds of that roof breaking for two reasons. One, Bill and Stan, these two guys who risked their lives to go in there and use it, and they thought they, they would lose their lives. Um, and then the other thing that happened was that when a fire truck did arrive, um, there was a very young um, uh, fireman behind the wheel, and he was scared and he was nervous, and he accidentally put the truck in reverse instead of forward, and he backed into a power pole, and it cut off the power supply and stopped the fans that had been driving the fire through the glove box line and making the roof rise. So the roof started to come down at the same moment that Bill and Stan put water on the fire. And so, and so you know, this is, this, is a, this is a huge story. It's an important story. Uh, we almost lost Denver and a good chunk of Colorado. Uh, this would have been an accident, uh, a Chernobyl-like accident or worse. I'm not saying that. That's the Department of Energy said that. That's in their analysis. And yet people don't know this story. Even people who live in Colorado, very few people know this story. What was it that radicalized you? Because when you were working there, you kind of went along with some of the people who were saying, oh, forget about these hippies at the door. Right. What was it that radicalized you and made you realize exactly what was going on? Well, it's interesting. My sister Karma, whom I mentioned, who now works for the EPA, she was kind of a hippie. She was going out to all the protests. Said, Why are you doing that? You're such a hippie. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I truly believe that everything. You know, and my parents said that too. It must be safe. We don't know what's going on, but it must be okay. Um, the thing that really uh, radicalized me was um, one day I came home from work at the plant. I picked up my two boys from daycare, brought them home, fixed them their suppers, put them to bed came downstairs and fixed myself a cup of tea um, and turned on the television and there was a Nightline presentation on TV and they were interviewing people that I worked with. They were interviewing Mark Silverman who was the Department of Energy manager at the time whom I worked for um, and to his credit he was uh, the first and certainly one of the very few managers out there who said we need to do something. Um, this is really bad. Uh, there's a lot of um, radioactive and toxic contamination getting into local neighborhoods. 
We have more than 14 tons of plutonium stored at Rocky Flats, much of it unsafely stored. That was the first time in all the time that I had worked out at Rocky Flats that I heard that I was working next to 14 tons of plutonium, much of it unsafely stored. Um, I was stunned and I thought to myself, how can I grow up next to this plant? How can I work at this plant and not know what's going on, not know about this? How can we not know this? So that was the moment that I knew I would quit. <laughs> And, and the day that I quit was the day that I knew I would write a book about it. I didn't know that it would take 10 years of research and writing um, to do this book, but I, I knew I had to do it. Can we talk a little bit about the family aspects? Because mm -hmm. the other shadow in it is your father, who begins as a fairly successful lawyer and ends up driving cabs. Mm -hmm. um, what, what made him fall so far? Well, I think that was, that was something that, um, that we never really understood, and I'm not sure I really understand I mean, it It's one thing I, I very much admire in the book, is that you yeah. don't give sort of cod psychological reasons saying, mm -hmm. well, it was this event or this mm -hmm. trauma. But it, I mean, it's incredibly harrowing when you read about this good man mm -hmm. becoming more and more distant mm -hmm. and more and more chaotic and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How did you unite those narratives? Well, and the thing with my dad, he's a, he was a good man, is a good man, and a smart man. He graduated at the top of his law class. Um, we moved to Colorado and he started in his own law practice and every, we had everything you know, going for us. Um, so was it the stress of being a trial attorney or, you know, it, it, also, it could have been, you know, all sorts of things. Um, but as, uh, as I wrote the book, I began to see a connection with respect to secrecy and silencing at the level of family and at the level of community um, and at the level of country, really. And in my family, which as I mentioned is Scandinavian, which kind of plays into it, but I think this is true for many families and certainly during that particular time period, alcoholism was something that you did not talk about. You couldn't talk about. We were all expected to pretend like everything was fine. And, in our, and it was the same with Rocky Flats. We were not supposed to talk about it. Um, everything was fine. No one was supposed to question. Uh, uh, and you were just supposed to kind of go along with everything. And we pay a very heavy price for that kind of secrecy and repression and silencing. And um, one of the things that has happened, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't sure how my family would respond to this book. They all knew that I was writing the book, but it's a little different when you're on fresh air and. Um, uh, you know, going around talking about it and it's on bookshelves everywhere. And I wasn't sure how my father would respond. Uh, my mother had always been very, very supportive of this book, but she passed away just before it came out. Uh, one thing that has happened in my family is that the writing of this book has allowed all of us to talk about it. And my siblings and I were all now much closer to our dad than we ever were in the past. It's like we've gotten to know a man that we never really knew. And it's been transformational for my family. There's two aspects about illness I'd like to touch on. Um, first of all, your father, there's a very, um, well, a very surprising passage where he's driving under the influence and there's an accident. Mm -hmm. Now, can you tell us a bit about how that impacted on you personally? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. Um, it's, it's a key scene in the book, really. Uh, my sister and I, um, we often rode in gymkhanas. I don't know if you have gymkhanas here. Yes, certainly do. <laughs> equestrian competitions. And uh, on this particular day, 
uh, and we were both young, my sister and I, uh, uh, we were going to a gymkhana and there was a car accident, my father was driving, um, he had been drinking, we didn't know at the time, um, and it was, it was uh, quite a serious accident, the car rolled several times, the trailer rolled several times, and uh, in fact I just finished writing an essay about this particular event that's um, coming out in Reader's Digest in a couple of weeks. Um, and what happened was the horses, my sister and I, um, we were injured but not injured badly and we crawled out of the car and we walked back to the horse trailer which was lodged in a ditch upside down and the horses were lying uh, on the floor um, and we thought they were dead. And someone came along to help us and he um, looked inside and he reached down and he touched uh, Tonka, you met Tonka, touched Tonka's flank and he quivered and it, it was an astonishing moment and it turned out that the horses had been knocked unconscious and so and they were not hurt. They ended up getting, you know, they scrambled to their feet, got them out of the trailer um, and so that was a remarkable moment and then I also was injured um, quite severely. I had a neck you, injury. Yeah, and you didn't know. I mean, and that's I almost didn't know. Kind of Actually I broke my neck. <laughs> And, um, and my, uh, my family, again, there was this um, concern about repressing everything, acting like everything was okay, let's get, just get things back, you know, back to normal as much as possible. Um, and it wasn't until years later that we could really talk about all the things that happened in a way that was really transformational for our family. To move it from the, the personal to the political again, when you were working at Rocky Flats, you started to have chronic fatigue issues and yeah. things like that. Was that ever, I mean, to your mind, was that because of the plant? You know, I think so. And I have to say, one thing that's happened since this book came out, and I've been traveling, you know, all over the place. I've been on the road for a year and a half now talking about this book. I received, I've received hundreds of emails from people who live around nuclear facilities. Uh, former nuclear weapons plants, nuclear storage sites, nuclear power plants in the United States and elsewhere who are ill. And I think this is a, the great untold story when people talk about nuclear issues. Uh, and um, studies have shown around Rocky Flats, there's a much higher uh, rate of cancer, leukemia, brain tumors, um, uh, stillbirths and that sort of thing, and then lots and lots of like chronic fatigue or things that aren't really very well defined. Thyroidal problems as well. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, well, you have a high blood cell count, your lymph nodes are swollen, you're exhausted all the time, you know, that sort of thing. Very, very, very common. Um, and that was a big problem for me and also my siblings. And then when I moved away, uh, and it's really, the dangerous area around Rocky Flats is really about 20 miles around the plant. That's where the most serious contamination is. So I want to emphasize that, because sometimes people hear me talk and they think the whole state of Colorado is, <laughs> no, Colorado is really a beautiful state. Uh, but once I moved away from that particular area, my health improved. There's no question. Some of the descriptions you have about what was going on in the plant really beggar belief. Can you tell us a little bit about Pondcrete? That was the thing that really oh. stuck in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Pondcrete has got to be uh, just one of the most incredible things. Um, contamination was released from the plant in a number of different ways. There were the fires that I mentioned, material got into the water, 
Um, there was a great deal of material released into the air. And of course, plutonium is, is dangerous if, um, if it's absorbed into the body through a wound or a cut or something like that. But it's probably most dangerous if it's breathed into the lungs because very, very tiny particles, which really are impossible, very, very difficult to detect, um, if they're breathed into the lungs, a little particle um, can lodge in the lungs and then it continues to emit radiation um, for up to 200 years, obviously far, below, <laughs> far beyond human lifespan. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of um, lung cancer, for example. But to get back to concrete, there, there were all the ways in which um, contamination was released into the environment. But when I was um, living next to Rocky Flats, they had these big solar ponds where they were trying to evaporate a lot of material. Um, and those didn't work very well and they didn't know exactly what to do. So they came up with the idea of mixing concrete, cement, with um, the material in these ponds and then creating one-ton blocks called pondcrete. And they would wrap them in plastic and put them out on uh, wooden uh, scaffolding and they stood out in the open. Uh, now, of course, what happened was that the plastic deteriorated. Uh, the pondcrete, I, I mean, the workers, when I was working there, workers called it the jelly factory. It's like jello because it never really set. Um, you could stick your thumb in it. It was like, it was like you know, jello. Um, so that deteriorated and also leaked into the ground. Uh, and then they had. Um, hundreds and hundreds of these uh, one-ton pond. There was the size of small refrigerators mm -hmm. um, that had to be dis disposed of. It was a real boondoggle. I mean, as well as being a memoir and a piece of investigative journalism, it is in some ways a legal thriller. The whole way in which you have a runaway jury, you have uh, the judiciary actively suppressing what that jury had discovered. Can you tell us a bit about the legal shenanigans that led to that point? I mean, uh, was the judge yeah. influenced? And if mm -hmm. so, who did it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, litigation around Rocky Flats is very complicated and, and somewhat discouraging uh, in the sense that, as I mentioned, it's, it's continuing to the present day. In fact, local home builders uh, now are trying to file a lawsuit against the people who are protesting out there today <laughs> uh, in a, what's called a slap lawsuit, kind of to threaten them to, to stop. There's a lot of money at stake. In this, in this story. And that's certainly true with respect to all of the litigation. And what happened uh, with the um, class action lawsuit, uh, Cook versus Rockwell and Dow, is uh, it, was, it started um, right after the FBI raid, uh, which is in itself also a very yeah. dramatic story. The FBI, <laughs> the FBI agent who led this, his name is John Lipsky, he's just remarkable. They went up in a plane uh, in the middle of the night and took infrared photography secretly of the plant. And I've seen the film, it's great. And you can see all these you know, white lines of radioactive material you know, coming off the plant directly into the local neighborhoods. It's just, it's just remarkable. Um, but that uh, raid led to a class action lawsuit on behalf of more than 13,000 local residents who felt that their health had been impacted uh, by Rocky Flats, but it's very difficult to sue um, for health effects because it's very difficult to prove and often plutonium exposure takes up to 20 years to actually manifest a result. Um, so it's difficult to prove. So that lawsuit turned into 
um, a lawsuit with respect to property values. And they had to prove that their property values had been damaged in some way. <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> you know, rather than human life, it's the mortgage. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that lawsuit took 20 years to wind its way through the court. On February 14, 2006, the jury decided in our favor. Now, my family was not part of that lawsuit. We did not stand to gain because even though we lived out there for decades, my parents sold their house just outside of the parameters that had been set. So for us, it was just a moral and emotional victory. Yeah. There was, you know, um, and I, I remember talking to my sisters on the phone when that decision was handed down, and we just burst into tears. You know, it felt like, however, Three years later, that decision was overturned by the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver based on a legal technicality, not based on the evidence of the case. And then just, um, just before Christmas of this year, it went up before the Supreme Court and they declined to review it. So that's where it stands now. I mean, but who, which bodies were actually influencing this decision? I think that's a very complex um, question. I think in the United States, we're very pro maybe this is changing, I hope it is, um, but there's a lot of money and a lot of lobbying in the nuclear industry, uh, pro-nuclear power and pro-nuclear weapons, um, and I think that there are a lot of politicians whose, whose careers are kind of on the line with respect to this, um, and it's very difficult for citizens to be heard. The Price-Anderson Act in the United States protects nuclear companies, uh, protects companies that operate nuclear facilities. Um, they are indemnified, largely indemnified if anything goes wrong, right? If there's any kind of a release or any sort of a problem or whatever with a nuclear weapons facility or with a nuclear power plant, the company is not responsible. Um, now, you know, and, and in the very beginning, in the 1950s, and 1940s, 1950s, um, that was necessary, uh, or people felt it was necessary for all sorts of reasons, and even to the present day, they feel it's necessary because if that indemnification did not exist, no one would go into the business. It's too risky. Nobody would do it. So the Price-Anderson Act, the fact that citizens are, are not all, we have no, for people like me, all the people who email me who feel that they are ill or whatever, there is no recourse. There's no public health monitoring for people who live around Rocky Flats. We have to rely upon the courts, and the courts have not served us justice. Um. The UK Prime Minister, David Cameron, is very keen to start rebuilding reactors in the UK. And the argument goes that if we're not going to be reliant on fossil fuels, and if we don't want to have uh, wind farms across the whole country, that there is no other feasible option for our energy needs. Um, how do we fight that argument? Well, <laughs> I think that uh, there's a big uh, publicity campaign, at least in the States, um, that nuclear power is, is clean and cheap, and uh, it's, the, it's the way that we've got to go. It's not clean, it's not cheap, and it's not safe. Uh, in this past year, I've traveled around the United States and visited almost every nuclear site in the country. I wasn't necessarily planning on doing that, um, but that's what I've been doing, uh, to talk to various groups. And I also want to emphasize, I did not write this book with any kind of uh, particular agenda in mind. I wanted to tell a story, I wanted to tell what happened. Um, I felt that this was a story that we were working very hard to forget in all sorts of ways. Um, and I wanted to make sure that Rocky Flats was not forgotten, that it was remembered for environmental reasons and historical reasons, that it's a key part of uh, the Cold War 
and a key part of um, nuclear policy, you know, up to the up to the present day. But of course, the nuclear power industry and the nuclear weapons industry are intricately tied in so many ways, and there's a, a lot of money behind both of them. Um, and I don't believe that nuclear power is safe. I don't believe um, that it's. Uh, frankly, I don't. I have very little faith that the governments and the corporations who run these plants will be truthful and transparent uh, when things go wrong or when things could go wrong. Um, out of all of the nuclear power plants that I have visited in the United States in the last year, um, their age, we have aging nuclear power plants. There are lots of problems. There are earthquakes and leaks and, you know, um, it's very, very difficult to guarantee that these facilities are safe in the short term and in the long term. Never mind that we haven't figured out, like the number one problem, what to do with radioactive waste. You know, that's a huge problem. It's a, it's a very strange kind of um, PR that the nuclear industry indulges in. When I was at school in the Scottish Borders, I did physics, and the set topic that you had to study was a nuclear reactor. And the class trip for S5 was to Torness down the road. Um, <laughs> We were also taken to Sellafield, the reprocessing plant. I was saying to Kirsten earlier, um, we went on a tour bus roundabout and they said, if you look out the window, there's a little river there and we've, we've always got to stop the poachers. There's just so many salmon there. And there was a guy in a full body suit with a Geiger counter walking up at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the way in which it was made intrinsic to the education system mm -hmm. that young girls, young boys who were studying physics had to study the nuclear industry. It seems that that's a, a very controlling aspect of it, that that's who's controlling the narrative. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, is this the same in the States? Yes, I mean, very you know, The same so. kind of educational, so. mm -hmm. um, well, not, not twisting the truth, but just nudging people in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. And that's a narrative that it's really important that, that we change. Um, beginning with, uh, well, you know, I was saying earlier, it's very interesting. I often talk to environmental groups, the Sierra Clubs, and anti-new groups and that sort of thing, and the audience tends to be a little bit older. And then I've been, um, my book has been picked up for what's called common read programs, uh, where a university and a city, they'll read the book together, and, I, and I'll go to do a lecture and I'll speak to audiences where most people are 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, and they've never heard of Rocky Flats. They've never heard, uh, you know, all, the, what they know is what they've heard, and that is that nuclear power is safe and it's a way to go. And they've never heard any counter-narrative to that. Um, hmm. So it's very interesting. I think it's also important to keep in mind that the nuclear industry is very heavily subsidized. And it could not exist without, yeah. without those subsidies. Yeah. yeah. Just before I open it up to the audience, um, I don't want to give the impression that the book is nothing but polemical zeal and uh, a catalogue of cancers. There's, <laughs> a, there's a really idyllic sense about your childhood as well. Yeah. How did you, just in terms of the writing of it, sort of put this mosaic together of the good memories, the investigation. How did that work for you in terms of the actual writing? Mm. Well, it was a very complex story. Uh, and I, I did grow up in a, in a beautiful place. Colorado is beautiful. You know, the mountains are right there. Uh, in many ways, I did have an idyllic childhood. Uh, and I wanted to bring all of that a joy, you know, when I'm riding my horse bareback and we're racing across the field, you know, it's great. Oh, I just loved it, you know. And I feel so connected to that land, you know. I, I just, I love that land. And I wanted to bring all of that to the story. And in fact, that's where I began with the memoir. I thought I was writing a memoir about growing up with horses and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and that part of the story is true. Um, but it's a complex story, and I wanted to tell the story through the eyes of so many people who lived it. Some of my neighbors, Tamara Meza, for example, um, Randy Sullivan, I want to mention him, mm -hmm. um, uh, is a kid. He was in my class. We, were, we had a mad crush on each other in fourth grade. And, uh, but I never knew because I was too shy to talk to him and he was too shy to talk to me. And then we both ended up working at Rocky Flats, um, although we didn't know. It was a huge, there were 5,000 people working there when I was working there. Uh, it turned out that Randy was a firefighter and he was the last firefighter to fight the last plutonium fire at Rocky Flats. Now this in and of itself is interesting because this happened in 2003. And Rocky Flats was supposed to be closed, and there were supposed to be no fires in 2003. It was a very dramatic fire, a bad fire. There was a lot of contamination. Um, I was able to get the full uh, report, which is available on my website if you're interested in having a look. And um, he was, and he was contaminated uh, during that fire. Um, but. Uh, you know, it wasn't until later when I interviewed him for the book that he said, I have to tell you, I was, you know, crazy about you in fourth grade. And I said, oh my God, I was crazy about you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so someone told me that if the book is made into a movie that we have to get married at the end. But, you know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but um, in terms of the actual logistics of writing the book, um, and so, there's so much research. I mean, I could fill this whole tent with the research mm. for this book. But on my office walls, I had three uh, narratives that I used different uh, colored magic markers. And I had, you know, my story, what happened to me and my family. And then I had the story of Rocky Flats, you know, the dates, the FBI raid, this happened, that happened, you know. And then I had um, the line of the history line, the storyline of the Cold War, you know. And, um, and that was a big moment of revelation for me when I realized that, you know, the Cold War was quite literally happening in my own backyard. And it's not over. It wasn't over when I was a kid, and it's not over now. And so I had these three storylines going around the walls of my office, and then I looked for intersections. And that's how I uh, wove the story together, because I, want, I, I wanted to be a good story. It is a good story. It's a, it's a, it is an it's a dramatic story. story. <laughs> the story of Rocky Flats is kind of an unbelievable, uh, very dramatic story. Um, but if I were just to write a book about Rocky Flats and plutonium, you know, no one would read it. Do you want to read a book about plutonium? No one wants to read a book about plutonium. It's sad and boring. Uh, so I wanted to bring all of that technical information, and the book was very heavily proofread. Uh, plus it went through the legal departments of two very large publishers. <laughs> so everything in the book is accurate. But I wanted to bring all of that technical information and all of the litigation and everything that happened to the story, but present it in such a way that it would be interesting and that the reader could understand how this impacted the lives of individual people. Again, to put a human face on, on a very inhumane story. Yeah. And the statistics, yeah, yeah. Are there any questions? I think we have a roving mic. Um, just the lady at the front. Uh, given what's happened to Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden, how have you got away with telling the truth? Has anyone tried to threaten you or stop you? That's, that's a, a very good question. That's a great question. <laughs> um, 
actually, you know, when this book first came out and I started my book tour, you know, I kept thinking, I'm going to look in the rearview mirror at some point, and there's going to be a big black van following <laughs> me around. But that has not, that has not happened. Um, and in fact, I have to say, I have received emails, uh, in addition to all the ones that I mentioned earlier, from people who work or have worked for the Department of Energy and have said, thank you for telling the story. This is a story that needs to be told. Now, that doesn't mitigate the fact that, that very few people know the story, um, and it's still a story that I think is largely repressed in so many ways. But in terms of how I've been treated, um, uh, beyond a few confrontational questions from audiences, you know, from time to time, or reporters, uh, sometimes I get um, very antagonistic reporters, but for the most part, people are really ready to hear this story, and they need to hear this story, and they need to tell their story. Um, I've heard so many stories from people around these areas um, that I'm now working with a couple of libraries and we're creating an archive of all of these stories so that they will be available to the public. Now it may be that my book, I'm very fortunate you know, to have, um, had a, to have a big publisher. Uh, I didn't know if anyone was going to publish this book. And Random House and Crown and Harville Secker, uh, here the, they've been totally 100% behind this book. And so it's been very helpful to have a lot of publicity and a lot of conversation about it. And so it stirred things up, there's no question, you know. Um, but I haven't, I haven't had any um, direct threats, uh, so far anyway. <laughs> yeah. So can we come to this person here? I live in France, uh, on the Chauveau mm. Peninsula, as you know, there's a nuclear power station going up at the moment. We've already Hold had it a bit closer oh. here. Reprocessing plant there, uh, and the rate of cancer in the Cherbourg Peninsula is very high. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a, a global problem, isn't it? It's right. not just uh, Colorado. It's not just the USA. Right. And right. Um, France certainly has got a is very keen for nuclear energy at the moment. Mm -hmm. The new plant is going up. Right. Yeah, Francis. Germany has turned completely away from nuclear power. And in fact, I was recently at a, a conference at the University of Chicago, and I saw a presentation by German scientists, and it was, it was incredible. Uh, and Germany is producing so much energy through alternative means, solar and wind, that they're exporting energy to other countries. And um, these guys stood up on stage and they said, you know, if we can do it in Germany, where the sun hardly ever shines, <laughs> why can't you do it here in the in the States? You know, I, it's very um, it's it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, some more. If we come to this person here. Um, I just wondered. You said that when you were young, um, the general understanding was that the plant made household products. So when did the um, news or truth about what was really happening come out and sort of how did that happen? Well, it took a very long time. Um, and I think it, it uh, primarily grew out of the protests in the 1970s and the 1980s. You know, and this is quite late in the game. The plant began polluting in the early 1950s. Uh, so it wasn't until the 1980s that people really began to understand what was going on. Um, and I have to say, uh, some of the activists out at Rocky Flats were incredible and largely responsible for bringing the truth to the public. And a lot of those activists actually were Catholic nuns. Uh, and you might have heard about um, what's happened recently at Oak Ridge. 
um, with the three people who protested out there and um, Sister Megan Rice. Uh, it, those three people are now in jail and they're going to be sentenced in September. Um, but what these nuns did and the people who supported them, they went into court, they appeared in court and they said, um, let's call it what it is. It's a nuclear bomb plant. We're building nuclear bombs. We're contaminating local residents. Let's say what it, let's call it what it is. And they were the first ones to really stand up in court and say that. And that's, I think, when it really started to get out into the media and people started to think about what was going on. Because even, and even to the present day, if you, um, part of the site is now owned by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the um, almost 4,000 acres that's slated to open for public hiking, biking, and recreation. We can't even get signs up out there right now. There's so much opposition by local businesses and local home builders because they don't want their businesses to be harmed. Um, even just to get up a sign that said, this was a facility during the Cold War, 800 buildings, 70,000 plutonium triggers, and there's still a lot of contamination here. You might want to think twice before you let your second grader go on a field trip to Rocky Flats. Um, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's true. Um, so we can't even get signs out there. So now, even today, it's the people who are protesting out there right now. And it's the people who, you know, Sister Megan Rice and um, her companions who are sitting in jail right now for talking. And Oak Ridge was part of the whole, you know, kind of, there's Hanford. All these facilities, the stories are so similar. Very, very similar stories at every uh, facility. So I, I really credit the people who, pro including Daniel Ellsberg. Kristen, it's an absolutely fantastic book. I mean, it does make you realise that Montgomery Burns and The Simpsons may well actually be documentary. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.